following discussion is for educational purposes only and is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease. Please do not apply any of this information without first speaking with your doctor. What is up, everyone, and welcome to the Diabetes Podcast, where we discuss how to take control of your health and gain the freedom to live the life that you deserve. I'm Gary Pano, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Grady Donahoe, who is a board-certified chiropractic internist. Hello, Diabetes. We are back. And today we are actually recording on the weekend. That's why we are in so casual attire. Oh, Garrett's yes. over here in his tank top, and I've got mm-hmm. my Green Bay Packers hat on, even though they won already uh, this weekend. And um, but today we're going to be actually diving into some sciencey stuff and getting really nitty gritty um, on on a few different uh, topics within the diabetic community, both. I mean, they related to both type ones and type twos, but I would say it's probably more related to um, the type two community because um, we're going to be talking about uh, metformin and berberine. And the reason why we're going to be talking about this is Garrett actually did a uh, paper for his master's program and um, did some extensive research on these two things just to um, provide more information and more background on these two things in multiple different ways. So we're going to dive through his paper um, and go through um, a lot of different mechanisms and how how these two things work um, with the body um, and for the body. So um, we're going to dive into it, Garrett. Um, um, what was what was the title of your paper? So well, the title was Berberine and Metformin: A Blood Sugar Comparison Review, and uh, the reason why I titled it that was because both berberine and metformin have lots of properties and can be used for a lot of different ways. But being my passion is blood sugar and diabetes, I really wanted to zone in on that. And when it comes to this specific podcast, yeah, we're going to get more into the sciencey things than normal, but we're not going to go super heavy. We actually tried to do that, and we're like, that was super dry and boring. So our intention is for you guys to, even if you're not super in the, in the science or not even in the healthcare industry, that you can still walk away with something that was digestible while still yeah. talking about some of these topics. Um, so yeah, about berberine and metformin and berberine is a herb supplement and metformin is a very common drug. In fact, you know, in 2017, metformin was prescribed in America 78 million times, 78 million prescriptions for metformin. Wow. And so, but then it continues to go up and in 2018, it was prescribed 83 million times. (laughs) And so I don't have any current there was no data available about 2019 or 2020 uh, in terms of that but i would only imagine that it continues yeah. to, to go up in popularity and prescriptions uh so and that's neither i say that with a good nor bad thing but rather just a fact and statistic that the drug metformin is prescribed a whole heck of a lot and is definitely more in the type 2 community but berberine could be used for either as well as um, might be given to you by a non MD, DO physician that doesn't prescribe pharmaceuticals and it's a supplement that could help with blood sugar control as kind of a recap of all of it. And it's very, very popular. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, have you taken berberine? 
Dr. Grady or I have, I have taken it um, a little bit here and there. Um, not very consistent, consistently by any means. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's, at least for me, it's more of like in acute situations where I just need a little bit of help at, at the time for whatever reason with my insulin sensitivity or, or stress mm-hmm. or whatnot. Um, but I do prescribe it, prescribe it. I give it to people um, um, in my practice and I've had quite a bit of success with it as far as helping with blood sugar, but ultimately, and, and we'll probably dive in or talk about this more, but ultimately the best thing for um, blood sugar control is lifestyle and mm-hmm. um, exercise and all that, that all that stuff. Um, so berberine and metformin um, to are kind of helping, whereas you need to also take control of your health, like we always preach, and mm-hmm. and try and see if you can manage it without those things. Right. How many of your patients come in with you know metabolic issues that are on metformin? Like obviously you don't know the exact numbers, I'm sure, but yeah, um, yeah, off the top of my head, I can't, I couldn't give you a, a good number, but like as far as people with blood sugar management issues, um, well, I should say clinically blood sugar management issues, most most all of them are. However, okay. um, there are a lot of people who come in with blood sugar issues that aren't necessarily diagnosed or seen in the traditional medical sense because. Right. Um, and they're not outside clinical ranges or the disease process hasn't gone far enough to be diagnosed or put on metformin. Um, but those things are there and we see them. And so we try and um, catch those things and, and in, um, interfere with those disease processes before they become an issue. Preventive healthcare at its finest. There you go. So when it comes to berberine, yeah, I wanted to kind of talk about since it probably is lesser known and probably let just less taken overall compared to metformin. I wanted to talk about what berberine does and how it's utilized in terms of blood sugar a little bit more uh, for just our listeners. And so uh, this is where the science team part comes in. So a random control trial is in terms of evidence, a r- the gold standard of taking a study where they randomize everything. The people don't know what they're taking. And so in a randomized control trial in 2018, 48 people, with poorly controlled type 2 diabetics were taking berberine, okay? So they classified type 2 diabetics, not very controlled. And what they found was uh, during from one week one to three months that those 48 people, those who took berberine, lowered their fasting glucose and their blood sugar after they ate immediately, as well as their A1C decreased from 8.1 to 7.3% average. And that was statistically significant. So that was without exercise. That was without anything else. The only change was they were comparing blood metformin, I'm sorry, berberine to non-berberine and then lowered their A1C from 8.1 to 7.3, which is a pretty significant addition to somebody's clinical um, and lifestyle change. Would you agree? Oh yeah. Like hearing those numbers, like to me, if I heard those numbers, like before I was a chiropractor, I would, I would hear that and be like, well, that's not very impressive. Like that's not a big change mm-hmm. in my mind, just because I know the possibilities of just, um, lifestyle, um, intervention can be so much more powerful, but in and of itself to make that much change just from a, an herb or a supplement or whatever, 
um, to make that much of a change is, is pretty impressive by itself right. without any other interventions going on. Um, it's pretty impressive. So if you combine that with um, those lifestyle um, mm-hmm. implementations, then man, just imagine how big of a change and how quick of a change you can make with that. Absolutely. And then in the same study, they also measured a couple of different things, but they also reported uh, plasma, fasting plasma insulin levels, as well as HOMO IR scores. So HOMO IR is essentially just a number. It's a ratio that predicts insulin sensitivity. Okay. So somebody, a type two diabetics fasting insulin decreased 27.1% in the study. And then the HOMO IR score change was 44.7%. So not only did fasting blood sugar A1C go down, but plasma insulin went down as well as their measured insulin sensitivity by the HOMO IR score went down. Now, what that essentially means is kind of what you talked about. It's a great, easy tool to add to somebody's strategy on top of everything else to start to control their blood sugar numbers. But one thing I wanted to point out was that this is just one randomized controlled trial, right? And so Mm -hmm. 48 people, and that doesn't sound like a whole lot, like 48 people, like that's one room of people, you know, post or pre 2020 before um, (laughs) all the world, before the world changed. So when 48 people could jam pack in a room, that was one room that changed, you know, that's not Mm -hmm. a whole big um, sample to look at, but the next highest level of evidence that people really like to look at is something called a meta-analysis, right? So what that is, that's taking lots of studies, lots of individualized studies, like the one we just mentioned, and then trying to create a conclusion based on all of these studies. And that's called a meta-analysis. More or less, that's, you know, the description of it. So in a 2015 meta-analysis, it looked at 27 clinical trials. So what we just described was one clinical trial. So this meta-analysis looked at 27 of them and summate to just under 2,600 participants or patients. So this type of study looks at way more people than that one little room. Mm-hmm. And they looked at a whole bunch of things because not every study is going to measure and have the same controls. So berberine was compared to placebos, compared to intervention lifestyle changes, um, other oral hypoglycemics, such as metformin. And what they found was berberine was, to, berberine was found to have comparable effects on type 2 diabetics their lipid panels and hypertension with no serious side effects compared to those controls that they were looking at. So that's almost a general statement. But what that's saying is when you look at more data regarding berberine and its effects, it helps type two diabetics. It helps their lipid or the fat profiles. You know, everyone's obsessed about cholesterol, LDL. It helped those things and it helped their blood pressure and with no serious side effects. So I think that's significant, but not, there's more than just one big analysis like this. Another meta-analysis that was done in 2019 looked at 28 studies and looked at around 2,300 patients. And these were type 2 diabetics as well. And they found in this meta-analysis, there was a better reduction in fasting plasma glucose and after eating glucose, so postprandial glucose, A1C compared to their control groups. And... What was interesting though about this and not, we're not, rather when I wrote this and looked at this data, it's important to not cherry pick anything and not just say how great something is. And so mm-hmm. one conclusion that I thought was interesting from this meta-analysis that um, the effects of berberine really kind of plateaued after 90 days. So 
all these great benefits of reducing your glucose, reducing your A1C happened, but it kind of stopped. If that was the only thing they were looking at after the 90 day mark, if they were taking up to two grams a day. Um, so there's limitations into something like just taking a berberine into how well it's going to affect you. But that being said, it still affects blood sugar and all these things that type two diabetics and type one diabetics care about, which was, you know, looking at these two studies, that's like 5,000 patients almost. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a lot of, lot of people. So it gives you a, a better idea on how the general population is reacting to, to those things. And I mean, that's the hard thing about science is that like mixing science with healthcare because you have, you have to look at a large population to get an idea on what its actual, you know, total effects are. But at the same time, when you then use that generalized notion for, for an individual, those things can be skewed. So like some people are going to respond really well to berberine. Some people are not. And so, um, you have to kind of take it in stride as far as, you know, what's going to be best for that person and is it working very well and is it continuing to work very well? Because like you said, they found that it's after those 90 days, it doesn't work as well as, as it did before that. So, um, I think that's an important thing to highlight because, um, a lot of people w with whether it's berberine or whatever supplement it is, they initially feel really good or they feel a powerful, powerful effect from that supplement. And then they say, Hey, this is great. I'm going to take this for the rest of my life. Cause I want to feel this good for the rest of my life. But in reality, your body probably doesn't need that for the rest of its life. And, or it's may not going to work, may not be able to work as well if you take it for long periods of time. So, um, I think that's something to highlight for people who aren't familiar with, um, necessarily normal normal physiology or just how that works um, because there's just so many people that come into my practice that they've been taking this herb or this vitamin or um, this supplement for 30 years because hey it really helped when I when I was having this problem and it took this problem away and so I'm I keep taking it so that problem doesn't come back um, and in reality sometimes taking a supplement or an herb for a long period of time actually drives you into another hole because you know any type of process or pathway in the body is driven by these supplements or uh, or these vitamins and if you push one part of that pathway too hard another part of that pathway then can get backed up or clogged up because it's being a lot of stuff is being pushed into it so um so you have to be careful with taking something for a long period of time. You need to have some sort of measure to say, okay, did it work? And is it still working? And is there any other things that are being affected because I'm taking it for a long period of time? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And uh, that's crazy. I mean, I know what happens and not just with supplements, but, uh, and vitamins, but also with just pharmaceuticals, people are on these for 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've seen a quote, I don't know how many times since I really got into healthcare more about, you know, you should judge a doctor on how hard they are and trying to get you off your medications. Well, the same thing is true with maybe somebody in alternative medicine or natural medicine trying to get you off your supplements. You know, mm -hmm. if they're only just pushing, 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 adding, 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 then that's, you're going to drive different parts of the pathway and it's going to be that much more confusing. 
Mm-hmm. And so you definitely shouldn't be on berberine for 30 years. You shouldn't be on anything for 30 years. Um, but so keeping that in mind and when you start taking things and adding things to your personal practice of how you take care of your health and your lifestyle is, is really important. Now, when it comes to berberine, you know, it's got all these cool effects, you know, on blood sugar. And I think uh, with those three studies that we casually mentioned, and there's more, <laughs> much more, but uh, it kind of shows and sets the base of, okay, berberine can maybe help blood sugar management, right? But what is berberine and where does it come from? Mm-hmm. I think knowing that gives power to it too. Um, so berberine is an herbal extract. Okay, so it's not an herb itself. You might have heard common ones, one of the more popular herbs now is like ashwagandha, you know, and all those types of things that you might see as like a plant or a plant supplement. Um, So berberine is an extract of that herb. And it comes from a group of plants or a genus of plants called berbis. And in that grouping, there's over 500 species of plants and specific plants. you know, specific organisms that can create berberine to be extracted out of. And, you know, one of the most common ones is uh, barberry is the common name. Golden seal is the common name. That's how I learned about, uh, that's how I learned about berberine was from golden seal. Uh, And then there are lots of other ones that are probably kind of like uh, organ grape is another one and gold gold thread is another one too. Mm Mm-hmm. So I bring up these names because you might see these in, you know, your Whole Foods or something like that or on Amazon if you're trying to look for things to take. So that's where berberine comes from. But um, that's the whole herb where berberine is extracted. And then why I bring this up is because since there's so many variations of berberine, thinking about it, as I was doing this research, there's so many variations of where you can get it from, all the processes to get berberine out of these plants are slightly different. And in my mind, it would make sense because I've done a lot of research and taken a lot of classes on GI health and like probiotics, which we haven't even talked about before yet here. But there is so much differentiation in a probiotic in the specific strain, not just the name of the probiotic, but where the strain of it is coming from. And I would, it would make sense to me that just to keep in the back of my mind that Maybe this berberine isn't as effective if it came from a different plant or something else. But if you buy berberine by itself, it's just supposed to be the con- concentrated extract of that um, herb. But again, it might make a difference. It might not. But I thought that was an interesting thought to think about. Yeah. I mean, I come from the same mindset of, you know, where is it coming from? I think it makes a big difference because I think it changes how those things are interact, how those things interact in the body, because science we like to think is so cut and dry and is so black and white, but in reality, there's so much gray area that um, that's why it's. I mean, that's why it's so hard to be a doctor is because there's so much gray area and so much um, difference between a person or a difference between a supplement between one company versus the other. Like we have several different companies that we use as far as our supplements go. And that's because some people with the pretty much the same exact supplement are going to do better with this company's supplement versus this other company's supplement. The perfect example is um, we have two products that we typically like to use as far as bile salts for people, um, which is your gallbladder, um, you know, helping with gallbladder function and fat digestion. And a lot of times 
we have one, um, you know, one of them will do better with one person versus another. And sometimes it switches. That person body for whatever reason starts to not really like that type of bowel salt. And then we start them on the other one, boom, and it starts back again. Um, and so looking back at the berberine and all the different um, sources, you know, I think there potentially probably is a little bit of difference between those sources because the process to extract that probably isn't super, super pure to where there's no um, contaminates, if you will, from that herb. So there's, so in other words, there's nothing coming, nothing else coming out of that herb that's getting into the end product of that supplement. Um, so I, I would assume, or I would guess that there probably is a little bit of a difference. Um, how much of a difference is really the biggest question. Um, and ultimately I, I don't suspect there's going to be a lot of research on that. Um, just cause there's probably not a lot of money in this field specifically. Um, so I doubt we'll ever find out that answer, but it's something to pay attention to and, um, maybe, maybe look at if you are, using a lot of berberine, whether you're a doctor or you are a patient, um, to see what, maybe if you can find out what type of berberine or what um, type of plant the berberine that you use comes from, and then just kind of make an observation. Is it working well for you? And then if maybe in the past you use a different one or you decide to switch over to a different one or something's on a back order and you have to switch to a different one, how how does it work? Does it work pretty much the same? Does it work a little bit differently? If it does work differently, maybe what source does that come from? And just kind of take note um, as far as how it affects you. And maybe you can get a little bit more specific to maybe which one you need. Yeah, that was, that was beautiful. A beautiful uh, both explanation and expansion on that. And, and it just kind of brings up the point of every, we're all different and we're all individually and from a health-related um, unique and that's why the future of healthcare should be uh, more individualized, uh, more patient-centered type care, and not uh, this cookie-cutter thing like, oh, you got blood sugar issues? Take some berberine or take some metformin. It, it needs to be, all right, well, what have you been doing? What's working? And like I said, that's the, one of the harder things about being a doctor. Um, so, yeah, totally agree and, and something to be aware of. Now, uh, this is so far been more heavy on the berberine side, but metformin, I thought was really interesting because as somebody, as a chiropractor, somebody who is practicing um, functional medicine and, and that's where a lot of my training is, is more natural type stuff. Um, I felt like uh, I almost needed to do more research on metformin because it's not like a competitor, but because it's so pr prevalent in the issues that I deal with that I didn't even know where it came from. And I don't know, it just makes sense to me that you should probably know uh, a lot about what people are on if they're coming in with, with that specific thing. I mean, 83 million people were prescribed this drug in 2018. So unlike berberine, metformin only comes from one plant. And I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that metformin. I think I heard that on somewhere else, but I had no idea or I didn't look up myself that it came from a plant. Most people will think pharmaceuticals, it's all in a chemistry lab, titrations and like test tubes and beakers and around flasks, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but so you do you still use plenty of test tubes and <laughs> extraction <laughs> methods, but I thought it was all synthetic, mm. right? Where metformin actually comes from 
a implant. I'm not going to attempt. Uh, I guess I'll horribly attempt. Excuse my Latin. I've never taken Latin. Uh, Galagea. Awful kit. I'm, I'm going to just stop halfway through. <laughs> Common name is either goat's rue or French lilac. That's much easier to say. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> uh, so this, uh, these plants that were really started getting utilized more back, um, you know, in medieval Europe a while, a while back. But essentially this plant, you know, goat's rue has a lot of nitrogen rich metabolites in it. And it was actually called goat's rue because it made the goats upset, whether that be from hypoglycemia or metformin, a common side effect is gut and GI disturbances. So whether the goats literally weren't feeling good because they had low blood sugar or gut dysfunction, who knows, but uh, it was clear that they kept eating it, but didn't like it. And Mm so, um, so anyways, it comes from that plant only. Now, piggybacking off what we just said about berberine, there's almost more control in that. You know, you have 500 species that could create berberine and you will have pretty much only one extraction uh, for metformin. Now I say this not as a pharmacist, not as a, um, you know, a heavy PhD researcher, just, uh, you know, a practitioner that spends a lot of time on PubMed and and researching, you know, scientific literature. So from what I can tell, if you are big on, you know, plants and ecology or in you can prove me wrong. I apologize. Uh, but from my understanding, it comes from one plant only. There's a lot more control in that. So it was going to be used more. And there was a lot more research going into the 20s about how to make berberine, not berberine, excuse me, metformin better. Because the reason why people had an issues with it, because it was thought to be toxic and call, caused lactic acidosis. As diabetics, we heard that two of those words before, because we think of diabetic ketoacidosis, right? Mm-hmm. So in a similar type of condition, berberine, or I keep saying berberine now, metformin uh, was causing lactic acidosis. So in the 20s, they were doing more research, but in 1922, it slowed down because as they were making progress, that was the year that insulin was made. Mm. And so what's more beneficial in the world of medicine maybe using this plant to help people or finding out ways to synthesize insulin and give it to humans so diabetics like us don't die you know so it's kind of understandable that research slowed down at that time but so it really didn't kick off back in metformin wasn't fully you know synth was able to be extracted until 1957 and that's really when um, it was patented. The actual brand name of metformin is glucophage or glucophage, which literally means glucose eater because it was so good at its job. They're like, man, this drug is literally just going to make these people like eat their sugar. This is going to be fantastic. And so I think that's a, a significant point, especially if you're coming and listening to this as a healthcare practitioner or somebody in alternative medicine that think metformin is evil, you know, and, which just because it's a pharmaceutical wealth, it actually has more of a similarity in its origin than uh, to berberine that we probably know of. And that, that was a new fact that I thought was really interesting. I don't know what, what your thoughts about that are, Dr. Grady. Yeah. Well, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that most are, I should say, a large amount of our pharmaceuticals are actually extracts from herbs. So herbs... Herbs are essentially, they are drugs just kind of diluted down because they don't have, they're not 
the extract or the active ingredient um, is not the only thing that you're taking in. And so um, what that allows is it allows for a little bit of buffer so it's not as harsh on your system. But ultimately, you know, herbs in, in, a, in a way of thinking are drugs. So that's why I'm not huge on taking drugs for, or <laughs> taking drugs for a long period of time, but also taking herbs for a long period of time. Um, because like I said before, you can push, push those things too hard. And at the same time, um, you know, you just want to see if you can figure out something, you know, naturally, whether that's lifestyle, nutrition, or, um, exercise that can help you get, um, get to a place where you don't need that anymore. And so, um, and that's not to say all these things are evil, herbs are evil or drugs are evil, but you need to understand what their purpose are to me they're a tool to help you get over a hump. Like you're doing all the right things and you still can't get over the hump of, of whatever you're dealing with. Um, these things can help be that kind of catalyst to put you over that hump and get you across the river. So that way now you can thrive in, in your lifestyle changes and all, and all those things. Um, and so, yeah, so basically helping people understand that, drugs are a lot of drugs come from your herbs they're just the extracts from those herbs there are some that are purely synthetic um, that are made purely in a lab but um, but understanding that drugs aren't always i'm not and i'm not trying to make a um a uh endorsement for drugs but doors are uh, drugs are yes you are you're in the pockets (laughs) i'm getting paid um, but, uh, drugs aren't always, or they aren't always what they are. They aren't what they seem to be. They're not, um, they're not made with the intention of destroying people's bodies. But, um, I think the context of what, of how they're used is probably the most important part of it. Agreed. And, you know, I think both, it says it almost in the name of supplement, but, both supplements and pharmaceuticals should really be called addition mints, meaning <laughs> there's something you add to your life and lifestyle and other things you're doing with your life to get you, you what you said over the hump. Mm-hmm. It should be a almost thought of as a crutch. Now, given we're type one diabetic, we're on insulin for life. Yep. You know? So there's obviously exceptions and drugs that are exceptions to that rule. Uh, but for it should be thought of as something adding to you where you can take it away. Cause it's not a part of you. You mm-hmm. know, metformin shouldn't be a part of you. Berberine shouldn't be a part of you. You know, there are these things that should be added to your life when needed to get you over those conditions and then taken away when you no longer need it. Or sometimes, you know, slowly taken away depending on what you're titrating and tapering off. So agree completely. Even that I, I'm now going to have to watch you Grady. I'm going to, I think if I start seeing some like, a new car a new mansion. Yeah. Mansion. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be a little more suspicious of your industry. <laughs> I'm just going to take a picture of this back wall and just use it as a green screen. So you won't ever know. <laughs> yeah. We don't, you know, I'm not, we're not in the same city anymore. So it'd be hard for me to know, I guess. <laughs> but that being said, you know, uh, the, the next step in this conversation is not just appreciating where it comes from, but how does it work? Right. And I had a general idea of what it, but this is where I love. I love this stuff. This is like the cell biology, nitty gritty of it. So this is, might be a little more technical, but again, we're do my best to not make it dry and almost summarize it, which I would rather just make it dry and talk about it. Cause I think it's super cool, but here we go. So metformin, um, a mechanism of action means 
how does something work essentially? So metformin's mechanism of action is still being investigated. And frankly, almost all pharmaceuticals, very few do we know exactly how these things work in these conditions. And for the most part, we only know how things work in specific conditions because that's how studying research goes. And then clinically, we make inferences about how it works in other situations. So with it being still under investigation, the main uh, mechanism would be driving something called AMPK. And so what that means is or how it gets there is step one, when you take metformin, it's going to, one thought is it's going to enter your cells. It's going to, within the cell, it's going to actually disrupt your mitochondria. And if you might hear the word mitochondria, and if you think powerhouse of the cell, that's a-okay. It does way more than that, but it's a little green thing in textbooks that says it's the powerhouse of the cell. So it disrupts the mitochondria in a way that's going to change the ratios of your, your cellular energy, which is ATP. And ATP, there's other variations of it. There's ATP, ADP, and AMP. And those are all stand for how many things called phosphates are on the molecule. So metformin enters your body, enters your cell, disrupts the mitochondria, and changes the ratio of ATP, ADP, and AMP. Now, what that's going to do is that because it almost lowers these ratios, it's going to drive up the, what I just said, this AMPK pathway up. And what AMPK is, is it's an enzyme. The actual name of it is AMP activated protein kinase. And so it drives this specific enzyme up. And with this now higher levels, more um, pathways to this specific enzyme, it's going to then change your metabolic profile and how your cell interacts with metabolism. And when AMP is high and you have a lot of AMP activity, it's going to change things like insulin sensitivity. It's going to change things like gluconeogenesis or making glucose. It's going to change that. It's going to change how you make lipids and make fats. It's then going to change how you break down glucose, change how you break down fats. And AMPK is thought of to be the master regulator of the metabolism. So by taking metformin and disrupting some things within the cell, it drives up the master regulator and it's able then to change your metabolism. And I think that's really powerful and cool because it, if you look at a graph and just Google, what does AMPK do? You'll, you'll see a pretty big schematic of how big this thing is impacted. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very, very important in a lot of different things because metabolism is important for a lot of different things. And so um, there's a lot of different conditions that it's been linked to affecting um, one of those being um, the, I mean, cause this is the first thing I actually learned about the AMPK pathway was um, actually Alzheimer's. All right. And how it's, how it's effect or implication within that disease process um, and how important it is to keep that system, that AMPK mm. system healthy um, and keep it running efficiently because they've just looked at how that affects or um, the implications of that system not working very well and how it's related then to getting Alzheimer's um, development late in life. So that's very important. Interesting. Oh yeah, absolutely. And that almost, uh, that brings me a flashback and we should almost redo that episode. Like one of the first like science heavy episodes you and I tried to do was about brain health and Alzheimer's and blood sugar. And cause often Alzheimer's now is called type three diabetes. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is one of those reasons. And, but man, that, that episode was probably so dry and so boring and, <laughs> 
and it was it was a fine. It was one of with it, it was a learning, learning process. Eight. Yeah, it was yeah. a learning process. So we might need to redo brain health and blood sugar later on. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. So that's interesting. That was the first thing you learned about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember when I first learned about AMPK, but in what scenario, but nonetheless. So remember that metformin drives all of this and drives up AMPK. And recall that metformin brand name means glucose eater. So it does all this effects of metabolism. It's got all these anti-diabetic effects and seems to be really good correlation on, on that, those types of mechanisms. So that's where majority of the research goes is trying to understand metformin and how it drives AMPK and how AMPK works and how that leads to anti-diabetic effects. Now, there are other studies out there that tries to say, all right, well, let's say it's not AMPK. What, what is else going on? And so there are other mechanisms out there that we don't need to dive into too much, but there is other things out there that say that AMPK is not the only way that metformin drives uh, glucose metabolism and drives those things. So, uh, you know, it can do things like drive up a secondary messenger, which just means another downstream signal in the cell that allows more glucagon to be released or not released and kind of interacts with hormones in a way through different systems that way. And and for the purposes of this podcast, uh, I would love to continue to dive deeper in there, but I think the whole AMPK thing is a big enough topic to kind of talk about people are like what the hell is amp anyway so yeah yeah like the biggest takeaway from that last part that you said um which is altering glucagon stimulation so whether that's up or down um because glucagon is a way for your body to help stimulate glucose to be released into the body in times of low blood sugar so if it's altering that and i take that mainly as suppressing the stimulation of glucagon uh, to help lower the amount of blood or the amount of sugar that's being released into the bloodstream and therefore lowering or keeping your blood sugar lower. Yeah, that's the part of diabetes management for type one that is under talked about, I think, and also under research about the relationship of insulin and glucagon and how as type ones, we don't have any insulin, but in reality, the relationship between insulin and glucagon is always a teeter-totter. Yeah. And there's really cool research out there about dual hormonal insulin or artificial pancreas therapies, essentially trying to create pumps that both have glucagon and insulin. And I was just reading a study um, just real quick, like two weeks ago about glucagon and trying to see if it's more effective in the interstitial fluid or in the interperitoneal space. So more kind of deeper and what has a bigger effect. And, you know, in in the peritoneum, it it had a bigger effect and you could use less of glucagon in there. Um, But that's probably talking more about actual transplant. I'm not sure how that'll be implemented, Mm. but uh, so you brought bringing up glucagon and us talking about glucagon in terms of metformin. I just kind of almost a tangent. And then one more, just because I think this was so funny. As I was reading the study, the study was done on pigs. And they talk, they described their, you know, day, night cycle, all these things. But they went as far to, in the paper, to describe that they put toys in the pen to keep them occupied. <laughs> and I don't know why, but I just thought that was so funny, thinking about just their stouts pushing little balls. And <laughs> Anyways, um, back into the conversation of metformin berberine. <laughs> so that's kind of how metformin works. Now, berberine 
is thought to work in a similar fashion. Its mechanism of action is greater, or from a more greater extent, the research shows more related to AMPK as well. And there are lots of studies. And to, for me to say these statements, this is backed by lots of studies that, you know, we can put all the references up in the show notes. But, uh, you know, it's also said to be AMPK. However, there is more debate on how much it is AMPK and alternative pathways for berberine as well. But no doubtably, AMPK is a part of berberine's action. As well as berberine has been shown to increase uh, the door of the GLUT4 transporter that allows glucose in the cell. It, berberine's thought to do that as well as directly change insulin sensitivity as well. And so it almost approaches insulin sensitivity and metabolism instead of just this more direct way of primarily AMPK to this bigger, uh, more general, at least that's what research is being debated on, what has a bigger impact on what, but there's more alternative pathways, it seems, with berberine than just AMPK, but it does contribute to that AMPK pathway as well. Yeah, and you can... And you can see that just by looking at the the uh, data because like we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast or what you had said was the effect on the lipid panel um, and some of the other things related to well, hypertension and some of those other things related to metabolic syndrome or metabolic disease um, being affected by berberine. So since AMPK is the master um, pathway for metabolism, it would make sense that it has an effect or it stimulates that pathway um, within the cell. So um, I think that's a good or a um, a good conclusion to come to, at least with what the information that we have now. Obviously, as more research more, more research is done, um, more clarity can be brought to light. But um, but yeah, then like the other things you said, increasing the GLUT4 coming to the cell, which like you said, is the door that opens up um, for sugar to come in. And then, um, I think you mentioned this, um, increasing the insulin, uh, receptor expression, which is what you said of insulin sensitivity, um, is another, another proposed pathway of it. Ultimately, I mean, a lot of these things we, we think we know. And like I said before, we think science is so cut and dry. Ultimately it's, it's a lot of things based off of assumptions because of what we can observe. You know, we can't necessarily observe everything that's going on within this study, all the variables going on. And so um, you kind of have to take it worth a grain of salt. doesn't mean it's not valid or not interesting. I still like reading research, but at the same time, you have to understand the limitations, the limitations of science. Um, and that's why I ultimately always like falling back on, you know, clinical science, meaning that the clinical outcomes that you see, is it working or is it not working? That's really the ultimately the most important thing is patient outcomes. So um, that's, that's what I focus on. But it's always fun looking at research and seeing how things are being affected because you can better understand how to maybe implement certain things for a particular person. Yeah, agreed 100%. And as I continue to increase, you know, the amount of patients that I see and, you know, the cases, you know, I continue to go more heavily on that, but so being so much closer to school and well, frankly, still being in my master's program on top of, you know, already graduating, um, you know, 
I still just love all that. I love drawing. You know, I, I love learning the nitty gritty stuff. But uh, as a listener, then, you know, as somebody who's not a, a practitioner, that's the question you also need to keep in mind. Is this working? Yes mm-hmm. or no? Yep. If it's not, what needs to be changed? You know, so, you know, we've kind of talked about these guys separately, Metformin and Berberine separately. The last thing I kind of want to talk about then is what's the evidence of taking them simultaneously and what happens? So a big thing when it comes to taking things together is you need to make sure this is from the clinical side and this is just the discussion on it as a listener, you know, you just, you could look into it, but uh, you need to make sure that it doesn't interfere with how your liver breaks it down and detoxifies everything. Cause everything we consume, you might hear the words detox in like a $300 kit that you buy or something like that. <laughs> but our liver um, helps get rid of and takes out toxins from things and just degrades it. So first off, Metformin was traditionally and still is considered to not have to be broken down by the liver. There's something called cytochrome P450 enzymes that was thought it doesn't break down. Now, I actually have found, it's given it's only one study that, that saw it, but they were trying to look at uh, metformin and if certain liver enzymes do actually break it down. And this one randomized control study, but it was like more, I guess it's technically not RCT, but it was an animal study did show and highlight specific enzymes that were, that have a possibility of breaking down metformin. So traditionally metformin is thought to not need to go through the liver to be broken down, but, um, that, but berberine does. There's clear evidence of berberine needing those CYP450 enzymes compared to metformin. Now, luckily they don't cross. That one paper that said, oh, possibly it's these enzymes and berberine, they don't cross. And that's the biggest thing is you have a certain limit to how your liver can process those and only so many of those enzymes. And that's when, you know, your liver can get sluggish and all those types of things. But when, in terms of a liver perspective, they do seem like they can easily be in the body at the same time and not damage the liver. Now that's just that statement. That's not studied actually together, but there are studies that do say what happens to your blood sugar and the metabolism when they are co-administered together. I didn't find any study specifically about the liver and both of those use at the same time. Yeah, it so, makes it would make sense though, based off of like what you found, what was found in those papers. That um, essentially the takeaway point from that is you can take them both together, and they're not necessarily going to interact as far as detoxification goes. And what that really means is they're not going to affect the duration of their effectiveness. So, so if you take one with the other, you know, one of them is not going to last longer or shorter because they're both being in there together. They're both going to be eliminated from the system in the same amount of time as if they were taken separately is essentially what, what that paper is, is meaning. Exactly. So what, what has been studied, and there are studies of them being taken together on their effects. And so uh, like we said before, randomized control trials are, are very big on level of evidence and that's what we'd like to see and that's why nutrition is so hard to do because randomized control trials with humans and certain diets is are just hard so on a randomized control trial of 36 adults with type 2 diabetics were either assigned berberine or metformin so this was one study randomized control trial looking at both and they concluded comparatively berberine comparative to berberine metformin had similar hypoglycemic effects meaning 
they saw similar <laughs> results in whether they, the people used berberine or metformin. And in the same study, by 13 weeks, other things went down, such as triglycerides and cholesterol in the berberine group, and they had lower triglycerides and cholesterols compared to the metformin group, actually. So this one randomized control trial actually showed better triglycerides and cholesterol numbers, if that's what you're focusing on, with berberine compared to metformin, which was super interesting and cool to see even back in 2008, you know, almost, what was that, you know, 12, 13 years ago, mm -hmm. like... That's super wild to see that in an actual RCT. And so by the end of the study, they ended up concluding uh, berberine lowered the A1C from 9.5 to 7.5, fasting blood glucose to 10.6 to 6.9 millimolar. So that's more non-US um, US measurement, as well as postprandial blood glucose from 19.8 to 11. So what this is all getting at is that there's a decrease in the berberine group with blood sugar, with A1C, with lipid panels, even when it's compared to metformin, which makes it underrated, makes mm -hmm. an underrated tool, um, which is crazy to me that there's studies that show this. And this isn't only just clinical, what you said, you know, what you really care and look for and what a lot of practitioners care and look for, but this is actually in the level of evidence that you find in published literature. Yeah, it's pretty crazy that a supplement you know, quotation marks supplement is more essentially in this study is more effective than the drug. Um, right. And I mean, it's just, it's just interesting how, how we as human beings perceive things based off of their title or, um, or the category that they're in. And, you know, we just assume that a drug is going to be more powerful than a supplement. Um, and in this case, not so much. Right. Exactly. Uh, and uh, that being said, we haven't talked too much because I think I said metformin could, you know, cause GI upset. Well, berberine can too as well. Um, and in this study, uh, 20 of those 36 people reported, um, so reported 30, yeah, so essentially 34% of those participants reported some GI adverse symptoms. So uh, that's something that you need to keep in mind. And there's plenty of research on that side of things in metformin and berberine that we're not even going to get into just because of time. Yeah. But like you said, it's crazy to think about that. And this one study um, that a supplement outperforms a pharmaceutical. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just to expand a little bit on your point about the GI distress, um, I like if I was given the option between berberine and metformin, excluding the fact that one's a drug and one's an herb or, or a um, supplement. I just based off of my clinical experience, I would always go with berberine um, because I have people with much less, um, you know, quote unquote side effects or GI distress from berberine than I do from metformin. Almost every person that I've seen that's been on metformin has had some sort of GI distress in and in large part, a lot of those people, it's not just like a little bit of distress. It's like pretty severe to where it's kind of affecting their their everyday life because um, whether it's, you know, diarrhea, runny stools, or that, and that's pretty much the main complaint is runny stools and diarrhea. Um, whereas with berberine, you know, I don't have a large population by any means, but so far berberine hasn't caused any 
you know, noticeable symptoms um, with my patients yet. Not that the, obviously it happens because it's in this paper, um, but to me, it's not, or it hasn't been as severe. And in a lot of people, it's just not there at all. Um, so just to c- kind of provide some clinical context to that statement. Beautiful. I'm also surprised you used uh, actual word like diarrhea, diarrhea opposed to like loose stool or something not as gross. Uh, to the top of the year. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind. But anyways, uh, the last study I wanted to bring up was on this topic of co-administration between the two was there was, again, now a meta-analysis. So a higher level of evidence looking at more studies, more patients trying to summate as best as they can, even that these studies weren't all done in one paper. So there's a meta-analysis done in 2012 um, that looked at 14 randomized controlled trials totaling 1,068 patients. And I'm going to just end up reading the conclusion off of the paper because I think it's just better that way. So compared to oral hypoglycemic drugs, such as metformin, but they were also using other hypoglycemic drugs, such as glipizide and a couple other things, co-intervention of oral hypoglycemics and berberine uh, showed better glycemic control than one intervention alone. Similarly, Berberine combined with lifestyle modification, meta, lifestyle modifications as a co-intervention showed significant hypoglycemic and anti-diabetic responses compared to one intervention alone. So what that means is if you combine berberine with another low, anti-diabetic drug, such as metformin, you get better results. If you combine berberine with lifestyle modification, you get better results. And I think that we've, it's good just to see that in a meta-analysis, not just one randomized controlled trial, not just in clinical experience, and almost from a philosophy perspective of you should always be moving, you should always be doing lifestyle stuff, but in a meta-analysis saying that when you combine berberine and lifestyle modifications, it's better than one of those things alone. And that shows how powerful that addition mint or whatever I said, you know, a couple of minutes ago, whatever your uh, supplement or addition to what your lifestyle is, is better for that hump. And mm-hmm. I think that's really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, it can be the catalyst to get you where you want to be, but ultimately it's not the end all be all. You don't want to be on it for the rest of your life. Cause one, you don't want to pay for that the rest of your life. If you don't have to, at least I don't. Um, some people may, may want to, if they want to maintain a unhealthy lifestyle. Um, but ultimately the goal would be to, you know, using that to get you where you want to be and then eventually getting your lifestyle and everything built around so that you no longer require something like that. Beautiful. So I think the, that brings an end to the conversation of metformin and berberine and, you know, the kind of takeaways that, you know, when I was talking about people after I was done writing this paper was, you know, Metformin isn't as scary as, uh, you know, natural healthcare providers that um, one might think. And berberine is just as effective as metformin. Um, There might be more variability in berberine compared to metformin, but it definitely is shown when taking these things with lifestyle modifications, you get better results. Uh, I wish I could find some research and I really couldn't on the type one population and this urban supplement, but there's not, I really couldn't find any. so it might be out there, but from how I was searching PubMed and you know Medline, a couple other things, I couldn't find a whole lot of stuff out there. But as type one, you know, you said you've taken berberine. I take berberine. 
when I'm stressed out and I know my cortisol is high um, on top of, but I know when you're super stressed out and you just can't get that blood sugar down, you, you literally go for a run. Mm -hmm. You know, that's like the ideal, like, Oh man, like, I got to get this down. I'm just going to run. Who? Not many people do that. Myself doesn't do that. Myself included. Um, but, you know, so there are utilization for type one to do. But that being said, I know we already have medical disclaimers, but still always talk with your personal provider. Um, they may not be educated in this. They may be educated in this, but um, always kind of think about it, not alone. And because that you can get yourself in some trouble uh, with some of these scenarios. So um, yeah. always just consult your providers. Yeah. And don't be afraid to ask them the tough questions because then that brings into light what they do know about the situation. And mm -hmm. it's not like, and this pertains to anything that you ask about it. It's not that if they don't know how to answer it, um, they don't know what they're doing completely. Like they may just have a way of dealing with a certain problem, um, whether it's blood sugar and they have just a pure philosophy of, okay, we're going to do this with diet and lifestyle. Um, and we're not even going to mess with supplements or medications or whatnot. And so they just may have that totally out of their mind because they aren't even going to mess with it. So it's not that what they're going to provide for you is totally invalid, but if that's what they're suggesting one way or the other, they should probably know a little bit about that. So, you know, it doesn't hurt to question somebody, you know, that you're trying to get care from, um, to see one, how much they know about it and you know, what, what it is that they're actually doing, how is it working for you? And is that the only option? Is that the best option? All that stuff. Agreed. Uh, so that being said, uh, let's uh, do our last part and uh, do a burst my beta cells there, Dr. Grady. So what bursts your beta cells that you do not have? So, <laughs> so, um, I would say recently, which was in the last, I think it was on Friday, Thursday or Friday, um, I would try to put in a new sensor and almost immediately it failed on me. Like I calibrated it once or twice. I think it was within the first day. It like wouldn't accept the calibration because it was so much different than, um, than what my finger stick blood sugar was. And so I had to take it out. And by that time it was too late to then put in another one. Cause then I'd have to make, wake up in the middle of the night to calibrate it. So I, so when that happens, usually I forget to do it for several days. For example, I have yet to put one in because I just keep forgetting about it. Um, and I try to do it at the beginning of the day. Cause that way I know I have enough time to get all the right calibrations in before I go to bed. So I don't have to wake up in the middle of the night. Cause that's not funny fun. Um, and so that's kind of frustrating because, you know, I finally remembered to do it and then it failed on me. So, um, so that was frustrating. Damn. Well, all you got to tell that sensor is you're dead to me. And then yep. move on. <laughs> but, uh, for me, some of that burst my beta cells recently was, so I've been having some CGM issues as well. And it was you know, essentially my transmitter was um, expired. It came to its end of its, you know, 90, 100 days, whatever it was. But I was trying to push the limit of it and essentially just stopped working. And I was, I'm so used to not finger testing and finger pricking that the data that I collected for myself, 
you know, by taking regular blood sugar checks, it's not nearly what I needed to make my decisions that I'm used to having with a CGM. And this past week, my blood sugar has definitely been a little more out, uh, out of whack and a little more, not so many lows, but definitely more highs uh, without knowing how fast my glucose is going up, you know, where it's at, uh, what should I really correct for? How should I go into this workout? You know, what kind of basal rates should I use? What should I have beforehand? You know, it really hit home again, what we always say, data, 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 you got to check. And it was uh, frustrating to me that I came so accustomed to one method and which was the CGM. And when I had to transition for a week to finger testing that it was uh, produced poorer results. And again, I have all this knowledge in my brain and what to do and how to do it. But even if you are a well-equipped diabetic type one, type two, or otherwise, and we'll probably talk about this later uh, in a future episode or something, but when the technology isn't working, uh, it's just super frustrating because we become so dependent on it. And so that was just uh, definitely burst my beta cells this week. Yeah. I mean, having, having something that you regularly use and, you know, somewhat taken away from you is, I mean, it makes it hard because especially if you've been doing it consistently for a long time, you mm-hmm. kind of got your routine down and you're used to all that stuff. And then bam, you got to revert back to what you used to do, which you can do it. But it's just like, all right, you got to recalibrate your brain to start checking your blood sugar rate more regularly, what that means, and kind of your mindset of of what you were doing when you did that kind of method. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, your mindset is different uh, when you're using a sensor, not using a sensor, using a pump, not using a pump. Because mm-hmm. um, there's just a lot of nuances that go into each different method. Um, and therefore your brain and your thought process is just much different. Yep. Yep. And I've already thought of the uh, title for that episode about when that stuff fails. And so uh, diabetics versus machines coming up. (laughs) So anyways, guys, uh, hopefully that wasn't too science um, heavy and hopefully for those who are really into it, you got something out of it. And those who aren't into science, you still got something out of it. And uh, it was, it's always fun to learn more and have you guys on and the stories that when people reach out to us uh, are just amazing. Uh, so we thank you for your ears once again and, uh, your time and, you know, try to share this podcast and this information, uh, with whoever you seem fit. And, uh, we appreciate it very much. And we will catch you on another episode of the Die Buddies podcast. See you. so much for listening to today's episode if you found value in today's conversation we would appreciate if you gave a five-star review it really helps us branch out our community and get our message across to those who really need to hear it if you want to interact with us on social media you can follow us on the die buddies podcast on facebook twitter and instagram or if you have any questions comments concerns or moral outrages you can email us at the die buddies podcast at gmail.com thanks